If you're just coming in, on that chair over there, there are sheets that you'll need. There's a three-pack of sheets, two full sheets and one half sheet. So check that out. And um, for those of you who are ready to take notes and look at stuff, let me just walk you through what you got. The first thing here is this chart diagram. This is a pretty common uh, way to present a book. Um, You'll find a lot of these online for different books of the Bible that different people do. And I would actually challenge you to do one of these yourself sometime on a book of the Bible that you're studying. Uh, You could just pick a couple of these things here on the left side and kind of go through and chart out a book. It helps you to learn a book really well. But I'm not going to reference this the rest of the evening. This is just for you to keep and have on hand about the book of 1 Peter. You have a little map that we'll get back to shortly. Uh, But this is the main thing you need to have in your hands tonight, is this handout with all these blanks on there, and we'll walk through that. Um, You're not going to have a handout sheet typically in this series. So tonight you're getting one, but usually you won't. It'll just be like when we went through the book of Acts, where... We're just going through, and you can take your own notes. (laughs) Buy a notebook or something. That'd be great, Uh, because you don't have tables in here and stuff like that anyway. So anyhow, um, we're embarking on a new journey, starting a new book. It's always a lot of preparation, starting a new book study. So my head has been in this the last two days, and we're also starting a a new short sermon series on Sunday, so my head's been in that the last two days, so I don't know what'll come out of my mouth tonight, but uh, I've had my head in a lot of stuff. Um, Do you guys, did you see in the email what our new short sermon series is? Four-part sermon series? Worship. Roy reads the emails. Good job, Roy. You get a gold star. Now, now I'm not going to bug you for not bringing me anything tonight. So there you go. That, you, you've atoned. Uh, yeah, we're just between chapters 7 and 8 of 1 Corinthians, we're going to do a four-part series on what is worship. So uh, this Sunday, I'm going to be talking about just defining the term worship biblically and talking about what worship is from an individual and from a corporate perspective. Uh, Mark's going to do a message on music as worship, and Tyler's going to do a message on uh, work and family life as worship, and then I'm going to do another one on the Scriptures and prayer, how we worship through those things. So, um, anywho, that's starting this Sunday, and tonight we're starting here in 1 Peter, and this is a book that has seemingly increasing relevance for us. Uh, Of course, all of the Bible is always completely relevant all the time. However, when you read about people suffering and enduring things uh, that we've not had to face, you feel disconnected from it in Scripture a lot of times. And then in your life, as you start feeling more and more heat, perhaps from the culture or the government, you start suffering more, those passages in Scripture that at first didn't seem super relevant start to feel more and more relevant, don't they? So uh, that's what we're going to experience with the book of 1 Peter, and uh, it's interesting. There's a, <clears throat> a guy I'm friends with who pastors in Pennsylvania. He and his church just started going through 1 Peter. Last month, uh, MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church in California, started going through 1 Peter on Sunday nights. I was texting Travis today, our beloved Travis, and he just started reading 1 Peter for his personal devotions, and so it's like, hey, all the stars are aligning a little bit here, you know, and 
Uh, the Lord does that. You know, He puts us in the same thing sometimes and gets our minds on the same thing sometimes. So, anywho, okay, let's uh, get going filling out this sheet that you have in front of you. Let's get a big overview of the book of 1 Peter. So, again, that sheet that has a lot of white space on it that says 1 Peter introduction at the top. That's the one you want to have in front of you. And let's look at the purpose verse of 1 Peter. And it comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, toward the very end of the book, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, which says, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So why was Peter writing this letter? Well, he just told us there, exhorting and testifying of the true grace of God and encouraging believers to stand firm in the true grace of God. And again, that's uh, chapter 5, verse 12, the very end of the book. Now, I, I've got a, a line there for you talking about the Old Testament pairing. A, um, it's a book or it's a chapter that Peter quotes extensively in his letter. And that's Psalm 34, and we're going to turn to Psalm 34 later and check that out. But write down Psalm 34, because Peter has Psalm 34 on his mind as he writes this letter as an Old Testament background and foundation to a lot of the things that he says. So uh, we'll get to that after we look at um, some other stuff in this letter, and we'll read from it. So you've got your purpose verse there and the Old Testament pairing. Let's talk about the author. Who is the person who wrote 1 Peter anyway? Hey, good job. <laughs> yeah, Cephas, uh, Peter, yeah, yeah, Cephas, Simon, Peter. He's got a lot of names. Uh, it, it seems so obvious to us, you know, Peter wrote 1 Peter, but when I was in one of my very first Bible studies as a Christian, I was maybe 17, maybe 18, um, I was at somebody's house, and I had learned that Paul wrote the Timothy books. First and second Timothy were written by Paul. So we get to Peter, and I asked in the Bible study, who wrote first Peter? And everybody just laughs at me, like, well, his name's in the title. And it's like, wait a second, well, Paul wrote Timothy, and he wrote Titus, you know. Uh, but in this case, the name of the letter is the one who wrote the book, Peter. And uh, Peter, of course, is the apostle, the disciple of Christ. Uh, we know him, and we love him. He's all over the four Gospels. He's all through the first half of the book of Acts. Did, did you know that Peter, his name is the second most common name in the Gospels after the name of Jesus? Peter's the next most common. He's the most mentioned in the four Gospels after Jesus himself. And did you know that every time the 12 disciples were listed, there was a list of disciples, Peter's name always came first. Isn't that interesting? And that's not because he's the Pope, that's just <laughs> because he had a very prominent position among the, the, the apostles there. What are some things you remember about Peter from the Gospels and from the book of Acts? Start shouting out some Peter memories. Married. He had a mother-in-law, didn't he? Good. You're, you're starting off with a deep cut. Yeah. Yeah, Peter had a mother-in-law, so he was married. Good. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. <clears throat> what else? Yes. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so he was bold, and sometimes that was good, and sometimes that was not so good. That's right. After Pentecost, well, at the day of Pentecost, that's when, yeah, it really became good. What else? What, what, what other events do we remember Peter from? No, that's James and John, the sons of thunder. Yeah, he got pretty excited with the sword there, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, quick draw McGraw there, Peter was. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. But before that, he was the one who recognized Christ, wasn't he? In Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 16, when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father. Yes, and then he went on to deny. Yeah, right. Tabernacles? Mm-hmm. Elijah? Yeah, well, and he was... Yeah present at the Mount of Transfiguration. Who were the other two apostles that were present? Peter, James, and John. Yeah, they were the, as you read through the Gospels, they appear to be some sort of inner circle with Jesus. They, sometimes the disciples were listed in four groups of three, and the first group of three was Peter, James, and John, and they got to do some exclusive things like the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the only disciples who saw that. Pretty amazing stuff. What about out on the water? You remember that story out on the water? <laughs> yeah, he got a couple steps onto the water and started to sink, didn't he? What a moment. Only Peter had that moment with Jesus out on the water. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, yep, at the end of the book of John. Yep. And backing up a little bit, oh, go ahead, Dean. There you go. That's what I was going to say, yeah. He was at the tomb. Yeah, right. Okay. Good. So, and how about Book of Acts? Let's do a couple memories of Peter from the Book of Acts. I already mentioned one when he became good, bold. That was at the day of Pentecost. He preached to how many people? Or how many got saved, rather? 3,000. Wow. The first Christian crusade event, right? <laughs> he, was, he preached and so many people came to know the Lord. Good. Do you know where to find that in the Bible? Nope. <laughs> Book of Galatians, as Paul is recounting the acts of the disciples. Yeah, uh, in Galatians. Yeah, he was, he was a hypocrite, as we all are, aren't we? <laughs> Maybe one more. Very good, yeah, yeah. Big event. Rise, kill, and eat. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. Mm-hmm. That was Peter. So, Peter's pretty important, isn't he, when you think of the narratives of the New Testament? Wow. Now, yes, right. Uh, he says Jesus gave him that name. You are Petrus, and on this Petrus I will build my church, yeah. Um, the last time we heard of Peter in those narratives, we just talked about the Gospels and the book of Acts. When's the, when do we stop hearing about Peter in the book of Acts? Do you remember maybe the last mention of Peter in the book of Acts? It's the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So, you know, Acts is 28 chapters. It's about half 
right at the halfway point of the book, pretty much. It's 15.7, verse 7, I wrote it down. Acts 15.7 is the last time we hear about Peter in the narratives of the Gospels, or in the Acts. So we have to speculate where he went and what he did after that. We just don't know. We, we do have, of course, the testimony from church history about how he died. You remember that? In Rome. And how was he killed? They wanted to crucify him, and he said he's not worthy to be crucified like his Lord was, and so he has to be crucified upside down. And that's the testimony of church history anyway. Yeah. And going back to, uh, you know, Dean made mention to in Galatians, where Paul was talking about how Peter was acting hypocritical. Um, he also said something about Peter in Galatians chapter 2, about Peter's ministry. Who was Peter? Yeah, yeah good. Uh, before I could even formulate the whole question, you got it, yes. Um, Paul, said he, Paul said of himself, I'm an apostle to the uncircumcised, just as Peter is to the circumcised. Paul saw his ministry focused on Gentiles, and Peter's ministry focused on Jews. Okay? Um, we also know from church history, as Rex mentioned, Peter was uh, killed in Rome, and when Peter wrote this letter, he was in Rome. So you can write that down too. Um, He was in the city of Rome, and we don't, again, we don't know all the details of Peter's ministry because we stop hearing about him in Acts 15. We know a lot about what happened to Paul. We hear a lot of detail about his three missionary journeys, but with Peter, we don't have that, and so there's just speculation, and I'm going to teach tonight what I read to be found, or to find, uh, I'm not speaking correctly, that I read and found convincing about what Peter was up to, um, and so we'll get to that in a minute, but we just don't know for sure, okay? Uh, let's talk about the themes of First Peter briefly. Uh, three themes that I want to give to you from the book of First Peter. The first one is faith. That's mentioned 13 times in the book of First Peter, is uh, referenced or alluded to faith and believing, okay? 13 times in the five-chapter book. A second one is suffering. 16 times in the five chapters of First Peter are we taught about suffering. And then thirdly, obedience, eight times in the book, there's some sort of reference to obedience. When we consider faith and the faith that Peter's talking about, the Christian faith, Peter's testimony is that this is given to us by God, that God gives us faith, and that faith absolutely has in its end salvation. The end of faith is salvation. This is what Peter presents to us in the book. And we see in chapter 1 that it's not just salvation, but also praise and glory. And we're going to look at that, I believe, next week, if, depending on how far we get tonight. But uh, Peter sees faith leading to salvation, praise, and glory. The suffering that Peter talks about is quite various. There is no one specific suffering that Peter talks about. It's a varied theme of suffering because the suffering that his letter recipients were going through was also varied. They were going through various trials, and he sees suffering as something to be embraced for the testing of our faith. So that's going to be a very important theme as you read through this book, that the 
various trials we go through are for testing, they're for edifying, and they're for honoring too. Honor is another pretty big theme in this book. Peter wants us to see our suffering as a means of honoring God and honoring those in our lives that God has placed as authorities. And obedience, of course, too, he sees this obedience in light of the suffering, that there's a great opportunity in your suffering with your faith to obey God and represent Christ. That's going to be a great exhortation throughout this book, is to obey in the midst of your suffering to honor Christ, to follow Jesus, okay? So there's, uh, there's some stuff about the author and the themes of the book. Um, oh, I gave you the place. I didn't give you the date for when this was written. If you look at your, uh, I said I wasn't going to mention it again, but if you look at your chart, I think it does have a date in there. Um, yeah, down at the very bottom. About 63 or 64 A.D., uh, we don't know with great precision, yet we do know that uh, Peter was killed under Nero in Rome and that Nero's uh, reign when he started to kill Christians and when he purportedly killed Peter was in the mid to late 60s, so it seems appropriate this is in the early to mid 60s that this was written. Okay? Thoughts or questions on author and themes and all that jazz? Okay, well, let's look at Psalm 34. Turn with me in your Bible back to Psalm 34, and I just want to read this this evening to put our minds where perhaps Peter's mind was as he started to write his letter. This is one of my favorite introductions to a psalm. If Maybe you have a Bible that has the little context up at the top for when, when this psalm was written. A Bible I used to have said when, uh, when David feigned madness, which is a fun phrase, to feign something means to fake something, pretend. This is when David was on the run from Saul, and he pretended to be a crazy person. Do you remember that story? It says, had the dribble running down his beard, he just being a crazy person, and uh, he didn't see that as like a one big joke. He saw that as the Lord's provision. And in light of that event, he wrote this psalm. So let's have perhaps someone read 1 to 10 and someone else read 11 to 22. Who would read 1 to 10 for us? Okay, Rex has that. And then 11 to 22, who will read after Rex? Dean. Right. Can you see great comfort in that psalm? Especially those closing verses. The Lord redeems the life of His servants, and none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. That's a great promise, isn't it? And uh, speaks here, too, that when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them, and He's near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. It's a very good counseling psalm if you find yourself in that sort of a situation. But we see the, uh, the text there is a great backdrop for Christians who are going through some real difficulties, who are being persecuted, who are suffering with various trials. And Peter will take those same themes in Psalm 34 
join them to gospel realities now that Jesus has come and died and rose again, and He's going to minister by the Spirit to the Christians who are in Asia Minor, uh, giving them great hope in, in Jesus. Okay? Well, let's talk about the general context of, of the letter. And uh, this is where I'm going to just get into detail of that I, I found to be convincing and interesting. But again, we don't know for sure exactly how all this came about. Uh, but this is our best deduction, uh, one of the best deductions. You'll notice at the beginning of 1 Peter, if you're not there, you can go ahead and turn back there. But you see in uh, 1 Peter 1, he talks to those who are exiles of the dispersion or aliens of the dispersion. And there are different opinions on what that means. I'll tell you the simplest one because it's really quick to say it, and you could take that view and run with it, and that's totally fine. That view just basically says the dispersion is Christians who have had to leave their home because of various persecutions. So that could be, they could have been in Rome, they could have been in Jerusalem, they could have been anywhere in between, and there have been persecutions and they fled to these regions that he's writing to. That's it. That might totally be the case. But I'm going to teach something that's a little more detailed than that because I found it, maybe just because I found it interesting. I don't know if I found it more accurate or if I just found it interesting. I don't know. But uh, I'll at least share it with you and then you can decide for yourself, okay? Um, In Acts 18, you don't have to turn there, but in Acts 18, we are first introduced to Aquila and Priscilla. Do you remember what they were up to when we first meet them in Acts 18? Aquila and Priscilla. Do do you remember where they're from? They're from Rome. Very good. They're from Rome. And in Acts 18, Paul's in Corinth. Why did they go from Rome to Corinth? Okay, persecution. And actually, it gives us a very specific detail about that persecution. It says in Acts 18 that Emperor Claudius, he was the one who reigned right before Nero. So Claudius, who was in charge at that time, he drove the Jews out of Rome. I'll read it for you. It says that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Well, look down in 1 Peter 1, 1. You see Pontus right there? That's one of the regions of Asia Minor. So apparently he was born, perhaps even raised in Pontus, but uh, he was actually in Rome later on in life. And it says that he recently came to Corinth from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We aren't used to that type of government, are we? <laughs> this, from the beginning, it sounds a little foreign that the governor would just say, hey, uh, all you people of this ethnicity or all you people of this uh, religion, whatever it may be, you're gone. See ya. Who knows how many days he gave them, but that's what he did. He just said, you guys are gone. He didn't kill them. So there's that, (laughs) but they had to just pick up and leave. So uh, Aquila, when Paul meets him, is already a Christian. He's in Rome. He has a Jewish heritage. He's from Pontus, the region that Peter's writing to, but he has a Jewish heritage. He's become a Christian. He left Rome because of the governor's orders, and he ended up in Corinth. Claudius forced believers, especially the believing Jews, out of Rome because of what they called their superstitio. Let me write that out for you. Superstitio. 
Now, that's just one letter away from a word we know, right? (laughs) Superstition. Uh, The Roman government had this word that they used for various religions whenever that religion would pull someone away from allegiance to Caesar. If someone adhered to a religion that so consumed their lives that they couldn't worship Roman gods in addition to their God, if they couldn't bow the knee to Caesar as Lord over whatever they were worshiping, they said, well, they're just members of superstitio. They're not willing to benefit Rome, to help Rome grow, because Rome believed if you blessed our gods and worshiped our gods, they're going to bless us. It was this pagan view of religion that if we bring something to God, He'll be happy with us, and then He'll bless us. Well, if you rejected that kind of thinking, then you were a member of the superstitio, a zealous religious practice that would conflict with Roman culture, and you were marked as someone involved in such a practice. Now, it's not really that hard in our day and age to make a connection to our culture, is it? (laughs) Christians are increasingly becoming marked as people who are just, your heads are just in this crazy stuff, superstitio, superstitions, that's all it is. And you're not willing to do what's right, whether that's some new theory that is being taught in our universities or schools uh, or whatever it may be, if you're not willing to join in, bow the knee to the government to do what the culture demands that you do, well, then you're going to be marked. You're going to be marked as someone who is taking, uh, having your place in some zealous religion that goes against the common good. So it's uh, pretty relevant for us what Claudius was doing uh, in Rome to what perhaps uh, is coming in America. But let me give you three reasons why, in particular, the Christians were sent out by rulers at that time, why they were driven away. Um, three, Three main reasons why they especially didn't like Christians. The first reason is because they were not an ancient ethnicity like the Jews. The Jews had something going for them in that they come from a very ancient heritage. They've been around longer than everybody else, basically. (laughs) So the Roman government, though, you know, they had certain conflicts with the Jews here and there, there was a level of respect because basically no matter who the Jews bumped up against, the Jews were there first, (laughs) okay? Because it goes all the way back to Abraham, which is way back when. Well, the Christians didn't have that. In fact, the Christians had the exact opposite of that, didn't they? They were brand new. And something new that you see starting to catch on, you want to squelch that thing like a, like a little flame that could grow and consume everything. You want to get rid of that as soon as possible. So that's the first reason. The second reason they really wanted to take care of Christianity to get it out of there was because Christians refused to worship Caesar. They refused to worship Roman gods also. They had a devotion to Christ that excluded devotion to any other divinity or so-called divinity. They refused to worship the culture's gods. And we see this in uh, ancient texts, going back to Claudius again. They were especially concerned about, at that time, what they called a Jewish sect because Christianity was viewed as just another Jewish sect for a long time until really the end of the first century. That's when Christianity started to be distinct as its own thing from Judaism. But, you know, for a Roman governor, he just saw it as, well, they're just another branch of Judaism. But this branch of Judaism, as they saw it, had a devotion to 
what we have in ancient documents as the word crestus. Crestus, which is another way of saying Christ. They had a devotion to Christ that excluded them from devotion to the Roman gods and to Caesar himself. So there's strike two against the Christians. And thirdly, Christians, unlike, I mean, in every, in every group there's this to an extent, but really, particularly among the Christians, there was evangelism. Christians weren't content to just say, well, you've got yours and we've got ours. They went out and what did Paul do from city to city? He went in and he tried to convert people, didn't he? <laughs> well, I mean, not in his flesh, of course. He, through God's power, it was on his heart from the moment he stepped into a city to see souls one to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. They weren't looking to just set up their own thing and not tell anybody about it. They wanted to tell everybody. Paul, Peter, they would go out in the streets and preach. They would go to the marketplace. Wherever the people were, they were going there to preach. So, strike three. <laughs> From a uh, Roman government's perspective, they didn't want that in their region, in their province, in their cities. They wanted that gone. So, there was a great driving out of Christians, particularly from Rome, particularly under Claudius. And we can deduce Peter having a relationship with Rome, perhaps being in Rome for some time. He knew of Christians who were driven out, and maybe Peter himself was driven out. And he later, years later, writes to them in this letter. It seems very plausible, perhaps even most realistic, that the people that Peter's writing to are those Christians who were driven out of places like Rome because of their faith and settled in what's now modern-day Turkey. It's called Asia Minor here, um, but have settled in this place, and he's writing them to encourage them in the midst of being persecuted. So on your sheet there, um, got a couple of blanks. I don't want to miss these. Uh, the Christians who received this letter were enduring varied persecutions in the region known as Asia Minor. So one way to put the pieces together that is plausible is after that uh, Jerusalem council, or perhaps even before that Jerusalem council, Peter had spent time in Rome but was driven out with other Christians. We know that Peter did spend perhaps some time in Corinth uh, because he's mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians. We talked about this back in chapter 1 in the sermon series. Peter's mentioned there, and it's very possible that Peter was driven out of Rome and spent some time in Corinth, and maybe he spent time in other places. And then towards the end of his life, he was back in Rome before he was killed by Nero. And this is toward the end of his life. Peter was back in Rome, and he writes this letter to be sent off to Asia Minor to comfort those Christians that he had known in years past who had also been driven out and settled in modern-day Turkey. And this is a big area that he's writing to, by the way. Uh, you see that we have different regions listed, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. This is, um, this is an area a little bit bigger than New Mexico. So to kind of put it in perspective, uh, it's 129,000 square miles, Asia Minor. And uh, a lot of different regions there, lots of varied cultures even there. Uh, but he's writing to those different places in that region. You've got your map there in front of you, and you can see where 
those regions are listed. Starting there in the west, you have what Peter calls Asia. Up north, Bithynia and Pontus together. We don't have any record of anybody going up into Bithynia and Pontus and planting churches, by the way. Paul went through Galatia, we know that. His first missionary journey, he planted churches right there in the middle in Galatia. He went through Antioch. He wrote to churches in Colossae and Ephesus. You see those names that you recognize. But up north, Bithynia and Pontus, we don't know much about early Christianity there at all. Uh, Then Cappadocia on the east and Pisidia in the south. So these are the regions that Peter was writing to and the Christians who were there as a result of the dispersion. Thoughts on that? Diana. I don't know the history on that, no. Yeah, I don't know why Asia is within Asia Minor. It seems like it would be the other way around, like Asia Minor would be in Asia, but yeah, I don't know. Don't know that one. Yeah, you should, yeah. Jeremy has no idea. That's what you should write. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Google will tell us. Any other thoughts or questions? Thus far... Okay. No. Yes, about the 800s. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, you guys know Bill Maher, that comedian uh, who's not that funny? Uh, Bill Maher, he's an atheist, a very outspoken atheist. He's uh, an atheist who's kind of sounding the alarm on this whole embracing of Islam thing. Because he's saying, look, the Christians, you know, we don't agree with them, but they're not going to chop our heads off. <laughs> so, um, you know, Islam, we equally don't agree with them from an atheist perspective, and they're willing to kill us, uh, some of them. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Um, I don't know really what the answer is as far as what's the magnet there that draws people. I mean, that's essentially what you're asking, right? What's drawing people to... Yeah. Teaching Islam? You can learn how to milk a cow and how to pray to Mecca, toward Mecca. <laughs> wow. Do both at the same time. Yeah. Hmm. Well, the only, yeah, the only thing I can think of, and I think this is probably most likely, and as you know very well, critical race theory, um, the whole idea is oppressor versus oppressed. We talked about this. We did a sermon series on this two and a half years ago now. Um, the first one was all about kind of explaining what social justice is and everything else. You, if you embrace critical theory, you see the whole world as people are either oppressors or they're being oppressed, one or the two. And instead of taking it on a case-by-case basis, I mean, first of all, that's a very false dichotomy <laughs> to look at everyone as either being one of those two. But instead of taking it case-by-case and examining each case, they lump whole demographics into each of those categories. So if you're white, you're automatically oppressor. You can't be oppressed if you're white. If you're male, you're automatically an oppressor. You can't be oppressed. 
blah, 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 blah. And I imagine, from a government's perspective, Muslims are the oppressed because they're not the majority. If they're a minority, then by definition, they are oppressed. Therefore, we need to coddle them and show favor to them. That's my guess. Um, now, I think it's quite obvious biblical Christianity is a minority in our culture. <laughs> We're not getting any handouts, are we? We still have tax write-offs, so we can hold on to that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. That's my only, my only guess on that, Kerry. Yep. Yep. That's it. Yep. We shouldn't expect or want or take any sort of favoritism. From our fellow man. <laughs> well, yeah. If, uh, if you're a Muslim who truly believes in Sharia law, what could possibly entice you about the Democrat platform? <laughs> okay, we're getting off, off, off track. Okay. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, it definitely is. Um, okay, we've got 15 minutes. How far can we make it here? Um, again, uh, Peter was in Rome when he wrote this. We see that at the end of the letter. You can go ahead and turn to chapter 5 of Peter. Look at verse uh, 13. <laughs> this clearly says that Peter was in Rome. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, chosen, Sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. How does that clearly show that he was in Rome? Well, uh, it's unanimous um, among commentators that Peter was referencing Rome when he made reference to Babylon. There are a few reasons we can deduce this. Number one, Babylon didn't exist, okay? So he couldn't have been talking about actual Babylon. <laughs> so you've got to rule that out and say, okay, well, what's he talking about? And it was very, very common in the first century for people to refer to Rome as Babylon. In the book of Revelation, there's reference to Babylon several times, and Babylon doesn't exist as it did in the Old Testament. So, um, it seems likely beyond, almost beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Peter is referencing that he's in Babylon and she who is there greets you. Um, now, we'll talk about what that verse means more precisely when we get there, uh, whenever that may be. <laughs> but uh, it's likely that these Christians that he's writing to from Rome, he had some sort of brief relationship with, as I mentioned earlier, it's likely they were all driven out of Rome at the same time, or it's possible, I shouldn't say likely, it's possible. It is interesting, though, in the book of First Peter, he doesn't list any of the recipients by name. It's a common practice of Paul. You know, in Paul's letters, he's, at the end, he's saying this person, this person, this person. You don't see that with Peter's letter. So perhaps he had a brief relationship with some of them years ago, and he doesn't even know if they're still alive. Perhaps he never did have any kind of relationship with any of them. We just don't know. Uh, we, we don't know what the situation was there as far as relationships are concerned. And it's important to notice that, that he didn't call any of them by name. Now, uh, the suffering that they're going through really, it, it casts the whole letter uh, or it undergirds everything in the letter, the suffering and the persecution that they're enduring. Again, look at verse 1 with me of the, of the book, chapter 1, verse 1. 
He says that they are exiles or aliens. Um, and this is both literal and metaphorical in Peter. It's literal for all the reasons we've talked about. They've been driven out because of persecution. They're told to leave. But it's metaphorical because Christians aren't at home here, are we? We shouldn't feel like we are. I think a lot of times we get comfortable and think we are. But there's certainly a metaphorical sense in which we are aliens and exiles walking around on the face of the earth. That has applied to every Christian in every culture at every time since the founding of the church. So this is important to pick up on. It almost comes up in every single passage as we're reading through it. He's speaking to them as people who don't belong here finally. This is just a temporary place where we're living. And it's not just our relationship to the physical world, it's our relationship to the culture. The culture counts us as strange, right? (laughs) That's because we're strangers to the culture. The culture, I already erased the word, but they treat us like superstitious people because we are alien to the culture. We are exiles in this place longing for our heavenly home. And Oh, I guess this note doesn't really flow with my previous notes, so I'm just going to skip that one, okay? So let's talk about the questions that we're faced with, and then maybe we can look at the first two verses tonight. (laughs) But uh, the questions that we're faced with in this book, and you've got some blanks there to fill in. The first one is, do we view suffering rightly, and are we willing to endure it for Christ? So as we read through the book, these are questions we're going to be faced with as Christians living in America in the 21st century. Do we view suffering rightly, and are we willing to endure it for Christ? Secondly, does our behavior reflect a good understanding of the earthly authorities God has given us? Does our behavior reflect a good understanding of the earthly authorities God has given us? And thirdly, how are we to move forward together in a culture that is hostile toward us? How are we to move forward together in a culture that is hostile toward us? These three questions are just at the forefront of everything in the book of 1 Peter. And again, I think we can see some increasing relevance for us as we read through this book and as we live in a changing culture. Our culture is most definitely evolving, and it's not evolving toward Uh, great kindness toward Christians. So, 1 Peter's going to continue to hit uh, closer and closer to home. And as Christians, I think, um, Stacy, it was you who mentioned it earlier, as Christians, we shouldn't expect anything but persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12, for all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There's a promise related uh, to that statement. And there are various levels of this. I mean, obviously, not all of us are going to be crucified upside down like Peter, right? Thankfully. But it will happen to some, that extreme persecution. And so, as Christians, we are always at risk of persecution just by virtue of being united to Christ. We are children of God. We belong to God. And does our culture love God? What does the Bible say? Our our culture, how do they feel about God? Hate God enemies of God, 
Children of wrath. These are the terms that the Bible uses. You, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are children of the devil. Right? So, uh, I think a lot of us have just been duped. In American history, we have had a lot of conveniences, a lot of comforts. And even though we've known it intellectually, the world hates God, it hasn't been like, I don't know, living in Iran, right? You look at Iran or Iraq or North Korea, okay, they hate God, that's clear. But my neighbors, they don't hate God, do they? God's common grace has suppressed a lot of that stuff. And there are cultures we see His hand lift. And in our culture, His hand's beginning to lift. And we're seeing more and more persecution against Christians. And this is what we are to expect. Now, we're not supposed to go out looking for, you know, like people look for a demon behind every bush. Okay, we're not supposed to do that and say, well, that's persecution, that's persecution, and almost like bring it on ourselves because we're just saying, oh, we're, we're persecuted people and we're not to live with a... Uh, what's it called, like a martyr's complex or whatever. Don't do that. But have a biblical view of what's going on in the world. And a biblical view will confront us with some harsh realities that a lot of times we're just blind to because God's common grace has suppressed a lot of this stuff. And it will be revealed a little bit. Stacy, you look like you have thoughts. Okay, all right. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm just seeing your face. It looked like it was a good thought, so that's the only reason I said anything. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. Well, good. Well, let's look at these first two verses, and we might go a little bit over time tonight, uh, hopefully not past 8.05, but let's look at these and uh, get a little bit of exposition done. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. I think I'll teach through 1 Peter in the ESV just to mix it up and keep you on your toes. So uh, that's why it may have sounded a little different than what you expected. But uh, Peter, again, he lists out his audience. And by the way, uh, it's talking about Asia Minor, this is an important uh, footnote. We don't know about any real thriving churches in this region at this time, but God did something pretty amazing in Asia Minor in that... Through the generations, He raised up Christians who were strong defenders of the truth. Perhaps there will be a time you'll be reading something and you'll see reference to the Cappadocian fathers. Those were Christians who lived in the second century, so just a generation or two removed from the apostles, who started formulating all kinds of good biblical doctrines as the Bible was being circulated and theology was being developed. These people were coming out of Asia Minor, a lot of them. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, a lot of the people involved in those things came from Asia Minor. So Peter's recipients directly weren't those people, but the generations after them and the legacy that was built from the Christian influence there. So that's just a, a footnote for you. Um, but I have this statement up on the board, and uh, this is my summary of the first two verses of 
First Peter here, the Father in eternity past chose His people to be saved and sanctified as exiles on the earth in obedience to Christ through the Spirit's application of His redemptive work. I like making long sentences. Lots of prepositional phrases in there. If you diagram this sentence and bring it back next week, you get an Oreo cookie or something fun like that, okay? Uh, but, but what you see in this summary statement is what's reflected here in these two verses, a Trinitarian theology of our salvation. Do you see this in the passage here, even just verse 2? These Christians were chosen according to the foreknowledge of who? God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit. You might say through the sanctification or by the sanctification of the Spirit. For obedience to who? Jesus Christ. You see, Father, Son, and Spirit, their salvation. The Trinity's there. Three different persons doing three different things. The one true God saving His people. Isn't that amazing? These Christians are Christians because of God's sovereign work. They were chosen, they were set apart, and they obey Jesus Christ. And they weren't just chosen for salvation, but they were chosen for their exile. In the ESV, it reads this way, and I think this is the more accurate reflection of what Peter was communicating. It says, those who are elect exiles. So they were exiles who were chosen by God for salvation, but they were also Christians who were chosen for that exile. (laughs) It's not just that they happened to be dispersed and God chose them. God chose them for salvation, and He chose them to live the life they were living. He chose them to be dispersed. He chose that they would go through such an ordeal to live a life sanctified while in exile. And this salvation was toward the obedience to Christ and the sprinkling with His blood. Now, that's an interesting phrase, the sprinkling with His blood. There are several places in the Old Testament where we see sprinkling with blood, but there are very few places where we see people being sprinkled with blood, as Peter's referring to here. You're sprinkled with blood, Jesus' blood, he says. And by the way, I think it's verse 19 of chapter 1. What kind of blood is this? Verse 19? Precious. We have a song about that that we sing on Sunday mornings, the precious blood. You yourself sprinkled. Can you think of some, maybe one of the three places in the Old Testament where a person is sprinkled with blood? It's a very weird thing to think about, isn't it? But it happened. Okay, but do you remember why? (laughs) Let me show you one of them. Exodus 24. Turn with me to Exodus 24. And someone, once you get there, read verses 1 through 8. Exodus 24. Now, let's start at verse 3. This is the people entering into covenant with God, the people of Israel. Someone read verses 3 through 8 of Exodus 24. Who's got it? Go ahead, Stacey. Naive liars. 
right. So they said they heard the word of the Lord and they said, we will obey. Pretty rash statement, right? Could they obey? No, they couldn't. But that's what they said they were going to do. And that's a fine statement. It's a fine sentiment. They just didn't have the power to do it. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. It was signifying that they were entering into that covenant with Yahweh, their God. Um, In Ezekiel 36, you can just jot this down. I'll read it to you. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 28, talking about the new covenant then. God says through Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. He's talking to the nation of Israel. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put away or I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So that was a promise of the new covenant. So you've got old covenant, Exodus 24, sprinkled with blood, and then a promise of a new covenant sprinkled with clean water. Hopefully you're starting to see a picture here, entering into covenant, sprinkling, God enabling in the new covenant to walk in His ways. This was connected by Paul And you can jot this down too. This is Acts 13, Paul preaching in the synagogue, and he says in verse 38 and 39, Paul says, "'Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses.'" They entered into that old covenant with Yahweh, and they were sprinkled with blood, and they weren't freed. They couldn't be freed. They couldn't be forgiven. They couldn't uh, have all their sins released. Because what does the law do? Well, it just creates more and more sins. You just keep on sinning. You keep stacking up your debt. But then Jesus comes, and the new covenant that was promised to Israel that Gentiles get to participate in, the new covenant comes along, and we get sprinkled, and we're clean through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, you're made clean that you then can have the Holy Spirit and walk in His ways. And Peter is saying here to these dispersed Christians that you were saved because you were chosen by the Father, set apart by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with His blood. And it's a continual thing. Another place in the Old Testament you see people getting sprinkled with blood is lepers. Skin disease. When people had a skin, skin disease, they would need to be sprinkled with blood by a priest, cleansed that way. And how often, even though we're in the new covenant, even though we've been forgiven, how often do we fail and fail and fail and get, you know, not dirt on us again in the sense that we're condemned because there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but we go back to our advocate over and over again. And Through the means that God has established, we receive grace over and over again. It's the continual sprinkling of the precious blood of Christ, continually covering us. Jesus is once for all propitiation. So he's starting off the letter with some pretty heavy theology here, saying you were chosen by God, set apart by the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and may be continually sprinkled with His blood members of the new covenant. 
And in this life, grace and peace are given to them, but it's the only place where it's phrased this way. You think Paul says grace and peace, you know, on all of his letters, but Peter adds his own little razzle-dazzle to it. Through all this, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you, be multiplied. May you have grace and peace in abundance, because over and over and over again, day by day, we're sprinkled with the blood of Christ as we follow Him and obey Him and all of His commands. Christian living because of the gospel, because of God's good grace. Okay, well, I went to 808. Sorry about that. Uh, but how about I pray and then we'll, we'll close for this evening, but I can hang around for questions if you got them. Lord, we do thank you so much for our salvation in Christ that we could never have through the law, that once for all we have been freed. We've been set free in Jesus, that we are under His precious blood that covers us, that cleanses us completely and totally. You've given us Your Spirit, and You've given us a commission. We ask that no matter what we go through in this life, that we would recognize that You have ordained it for Your glory and our good, and that we would live faithfully in honoring You and living a life worthy of the gospel by which we are saved. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Sorry it went fast at the end.